Welcome to the Armada podcast, where we are focusing in on DAO governance. Let's hop into the show. If you could start with who you are and what you're working on. Uh, my name is Ezra, uh, or Mazrat, on the internet sometimes. Uh, and I'm working on Lego DAO. It's one of the things I'm working on right now. And we're kind of a dev shop slash DAO group that is trying to trying to take a, a slightly new approach to, to DAO infrastructure where we're just trying to support standards and and build for specific projects and kind of let the let the standards evolve from adoption rather than um trying to shoot for the moon right away so if i had to like play that back it's like hey we think we can add value to this and then sort of us sort of architecting this master plan and going out and trying to make yet another thing to kind of go guide everyone we're going to kind of take a little bit more supportive role in in helping the ones that are starting to emerge and the ones that are interested in the help to kind of just work collaboratively on that mission as opposed to sort of like vision or, or dictatorial uh style is that a fair assumption of that yeah that's that's absolutely right um we we think that there are some standards emerging and we just want to help that along basically um you know, take what's there and help things get connected, help flesh things out, help things maybe get a little bit generalized where they're still very specific, um, and help where the pain points are for the... I mean, we're in the privileged position now where there's a bunch of communities and organizations that are really trying to make decentralized governance work in a practical way, day to day. And you know, not, not to say that centrally coming up with ideas and then putting them out there is bad, but there's probably more space for just following what these projects are asking for right now than people are actually working on or have been working on up to now. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, it certainly it goes counter a bit to your point of you know classic Silicon Valley uh, approach of of building companies. But uh, these DAOs, by nature, are collaborative and they're open and so you know i i could imagine that your guys model is, is super interesting and successful in this new paradigm and so um it's certainly when i when i was reading about what you guys are doing which i want to get into in a minute uh it's certainly really interesting and uh, i think novel and has a high probability of, of being great for this exact use case maybe not work great for a startup classic startup but for these right. use cases i think it's, it's super interesting yeah because we're really thinking about ourselves more as a dev shop than you know a startup so right. we're a dev shop that just has a specific type of work that we're trying to do, um, which is which is to work on on DAOs basically. But if some kind of framework or standards or you know some something that resembles more like a, more of a product suite emerges, that'll be it will it will be emergent. It'll happen over time, and you know maybe at some point in the future that becomes its own thing, and maybe there's a governance token for it or whatever. But we're not going to push towards that for its own sake. We're going to push towards making sure that projects really have what they need and, and being part of those communities and, and part of helping them um, evolve their governance. And just we think that standards will emerge naturally from that. And I think that's already happening. So interesting. So which fictional character would you like to have dinner with? <laughs> I saw this. I saw this question and I, I had to look it up a little bit. Um, so. This I didn't know the name of this character, but uh, so I looked it up. The name is Funus the Memorius, which is totally arcane sounding, but it's it's a story from Borges, who's an Argentinian writer, Argentine writer, I guess is how you say it. Um, 
And he's a person that has an accident and then as a result of the accident can remember everything. So um, so like instead of counting the normal way, like in like base 10 or something like that, he just remembers a unique number for every single number, you know? So it's just base like infinity or he remembers every mm -hmm. memory he's ever had perfectly. Um, so that, I mean, that sounds like an interesting person to talk to, right? It's, it's totally. Yeah. Wow. Magical. Yeah. I don't even, <laughs> I, I totally, they'll, a, that's the 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 most obscure answer we've gotten thus far, uh, and <laughs> might be uh, the winner uh, for that. Um, and then, B, I have no idea if this was legit or not, but there was, I think, a TikTok or an Instagram account or something like that, and it was this this young woman who had some sort of um, kind of neurological condition that she could remember basically everything, uh, and she was talking about her earliest earliest memories as as like a two year old, one year old, and it was just fascinating, especially as a new parent, to kind of hear her talk about her memories as related. So I'm thinking about this person, right, is a little bit on on steroids in that regard of like, yeah, there's there's incredible things that you can learn about very unique situations that most people would just either forget or not catch or whatever it may be. And certainly some interesting stories in there. Yeah, totally. And and this is it's such an extreme that I think like that example with the numbers. Um, it's like means that this person sees the world in a completely different and alien way to you or right. I, because uh, we 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 take all these shortcuts because we can, you know, you can't just remember everything, right? Like, right. you can't just remember, like for example, language as well, right? We we have like alphabets, or every language has at least some repetition in the way it's written down. But this person could just remember a unique symbol for every every word, right? Right. Just every single right. word is is a completely unique thing. Um, yeah, just how would how would that <laughs> how would a conversation with a person like that be? Fascinating, fascinating. So let's talk. We got a little bit into this before uh, that hypothetical uh, question, the icebreaker. Uh, what, but so why do you think this kind of Lego DAO is the right approach? And maybe alternatively stated, like why are you guys choosing to do this model? Um, as opposed to some of your other pro like why not just join something specific or why not you know we talked a little bit like how do you guys think about why this approach is 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 the right one for you guys yeah and i i mean I, i'm definitely not and i guess this is this is part of our approach too i'm definitely not trying to claim that people shouldn't do things any other way or that this is the capital r right approach to to building DAOs. but i think that this is a good approach right now um I think, like I said before, there are now really a pretty good number of projects that are actively trying to do governance this way. And they're they're fairly diverse, right? It's everything from like Uniswap or Compound, where they really did start out like a startup and then for, for legal reasons, basically have quote unquote decentralized their governance mm -hmm. um, to products on the other end, which were maybe nothing but a... a a chat room and then they added a token and they're kind of evolving towards a DAO. Um, but bo in both cases, you know, they are actually doing something and they actually have needs right now. And um, it's, it's very appealing, I think, just to us on a personal level um, to just solve problems for people today uh, and to do that as a group, you know, so we, we wanted to, rather than just me going and joining one of these communities and just working on governance there, you know, we can, we can go, to different projects and and pick and choose a little bit more and and get involved as a group and build something as a group and as as a team which i think is appealing as well um 
so yeah, I don't think that it's not that you can't do things other ways. And, and I think great ideas do come from, from uh, people just, you know, sitting in their, in their bedroom and like coming up with a totally new idea and then just going and trying it out. But I think for us, we see an opportunity to do this kind of work now. And it was also just appealing to us to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, one thing that I'm, as I was listening, you kind of talk about that path is uh, there's a very classic pattern here in, in Silicon Valley around, um, you know, aqua hiring existing teams or, you know, founders kind of, you know, the PayPal mafia type idea where you have this group of people who like working together. And what you don't hear uh, as you experience in the kind of the Silicon Valley world is that there's all the people sort of beneath that in the sub teams that are effectively doing a little bit of what you guys are doing uh, in the startup space, right? They're all they're all working at Facebook and then Facebook becomes, you know, not what they not kind of the thing they move to Uber or whatever it is, right? And there's sort of these managers, team leads, uh, co-workers or whatever that are sort of moving around from team to team because they love working together and they like working on this particular space. And one thing I'm just excited about as I think about your guys' models, you're also a little bit of an experiment just sort of for any group of people that enjoy working together to be able to to move around and, and work on things, which with DAOs and, and the structure that you guys are, are pursuing is like, it's just fascinating experiment to me to kind of watch that play out. And, and I'll certainly be um, keen to kind of watch it play out and, and how it goes. But uh, it's a it's a really cool structure that again, repeating myself, that we've seen in other worlds that doesn't really get talked about. We talk about it at the founder level often, but not necessarily at that sort of, um, you know, team contributor level and um, super exciting, super exciting. Yeah, I have, I have, I have no idea and I'm not sure if it's even useful to, to speculate on, on how things are going to work in the future, but I can definitely say that how it feels right now is that to some degree, this is kind of how everything has always worked, that you have your kind of close group of people that like working together, and you probably end up working with those people almost on everything. And and that group shifts over time, right? Yes. And you might be members of a, a few different groups like that. But the the main thing about it is that it's, it's actually a really small group, right? It's, it's not 150 people. It's It's like 10 or maybe 15 people at a time and it shifts over time and there's little mini groups inside of that that like working together on different things and you do end up going from project to project maybe you start a thing together or maybe you go work at a thing together um and i think that that's kind of just getting brought out here um because the way a lot of these the larger projects and these larger communities work is that you just have to come in and kind of engage with it and and work on something there and it's helpful to have kind of a small group of people that are going to propose something together to a DAO or to a community, like, hey, we've got this idea, we want to work on it. Um, and so you end up really depending on that small group anyway. And now it's just giving that sort of a name, right? Um, yeah. Like uh, yeah. there's this essay squad wealth that I think is quite related. They're, they're maybe going for like a slightly more general concept of just small groups on the internet but but this is definitely a feeling i felt throughout my life my life of working in like lots of different areas i've always had this group of people that are always referring each other to things and, and choosing to work together on things and it's it's just an extension of that yeah i love it um so let's talk about why is it important to have an unopinionated governance tool in your opinion um right now so so in the long run, I don't know if it's useful to call something unopinionated or opinionated, but more like just in the long run, it's it's important to have the right tool, right? The thing that actually does what projects like this need. But right now, we're still very much in the space where um, 
we don't really know. You know, we don't really know what these projects are going to need in a year or in two years or in three years or in five years or in 10 years. We don't really know what the world is. Um, and so you can try to just guess, right? Um, but you don't have to do that, right? Um, you can also just say, let's let's build for the needs that exist now. And right now, if, if you want to do that, it's a, it's a really big disadvantage to go to a project and say, hey, we've got a thing that can work for you, but you need to completely switch everything you're doing to this particular kind of closed governance ecosystem. Um, and that's going to be really high friction for them. And, and especially if it's a big project, it's probably a no-go um, because it's, it's also so risky. Um, so it's just better to be in a place where you can work with the tools that are that are already there. And I think that applies beyond governance too. Like if, if you just look around crypto, the things that are really getting adopted are are things that tend to be pretty unopinionated, like like um like ERC twenty or ERC seven twenty one, right? Mm -hmm. So when you guys think about this is kind of a dumb question in the sense that like when you think about the Lego pieces of of Lego DAO, uh, which you guys are working on. Uh, the the Lego pieces sound really small, and I don't, I don't know how to describe this in a way. But like, like you guys, it sounds like you're really thoughtful about being quite granular uh, on it, as opposed to maybe template driven. Or you know, uh, I, have, I have a young child that has you know these big like Duplo box, right? And they're like these massive Legos, and you can build some cool stuff, but really it's a it's a restricted scale, right? right? And like it's intentional because you know he's still developing his motor skills. So. Uh, it sounds like it's a very granular, like, hey, you literally, if we build out all of these little Lego pieces, we want to build a world where you can build a, you know, a castle, a boat, uh, an island, like whatever it is, right? And and be very detailed in in that journey. Is that a fair caricature of that? Uh, I don't think so, actually. I mean, I, I think you're right. You're definitely right in some sense. But I think it might be more right to say... Um, that we're just, we're not trying to choose the Lego pieces. We're trying to I let the, the, the ecosystem choose the Lego pieces, right? So lots of projects are using Gnosis Safe, right? So maybe there's some opportunities to connect things there. Lots of projects are using the Compound Governor contract and forking that. Um, uh, lots of projects are using ERC-20s or derivatives of it for governance tokens. Um, so there's a lot of patterns you already see and those are the Legos, right? So it's just like about making sure they connect. And then maybe there's some missing pieces that people need and making sure to build those things in uh, unopinionated is maybe the wrong word. It's like what what I what I want to avoid building is something that um, creates barriers, right? Where like once you're using this tool, you now can't use this whole set of uh, other set of tools, right? There's very little reason to do that um, unless you've already set yourself up in some kind of incentive trap where you've got your own token and you're you know forced to try to get everybody that's using your your tools to use that token and and now you need to kind of separate yourself from the rest of the ecosystem and we want to try to not do that so that you know it doesn't matter like if you're using compound governance and anosis safe and contracts from a bunch of other projects as long as they work together well you know you shouldn't shouldn't have a problem doing that, you know, just because different people built those original contracts. I see that. That's a good framing. I, I think it's a it's a good way of articulating is like, here's here's what I'm what we're not trying to do. Uh, and that that is helpful kind of anti pattern for um, what it is. Uh, that's super helpful. So 
Do you suspect that prediction markets are going to be sort of standard in Dow governance? And I know it's a little area that in your guys' documentation, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes, talks a little bit about. But can you kind of talk me through how you think about prediction markets in Dow governance? Yeah, so I'm I'm uncertain what the rule will be, but the idea has been around for a long time. The the idea that prediction markets can be useful for governance, like the first instance of it that I'm aware of, is from um, Robin Hansen and Futarchy, which I think I think the original papers from around the year 2000 or something like that. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons to think that it, that it, that it might be useful. One of the reasons, and the one that has been most relevant most recently in in DAOs, and this is something that we did in DAOstech that that I think really worked and and more people should look at, um, is uh, you know Matan Field, the one of the founders of DAOstech, came up with this holographic consensus idea, which basically applies prediction markets to trying to scale up DAO governance. So. Right now, if you look at an on-chain voting system, it has to move really slowly in order to stay secure. If you made it too easy to pass the proposals, then people would be too worried about passing bad proposals. So so it has to move slowly. And one way to deal with that is to add a prediction market to, to every proposal that predicts if the proposal is basically good, if if the voters will like it. And then if the prediction market rates really highly that voters will really like it then you can basically speed it up um, and that that can let you do governance faster so so prediction markets can let you scale up governance that's that's one thing that that could be good um another use case that i think is a little goes a little bit more back to robin hansen's way of looking at it um is what i like to call like the expertise problem which is the problem that you might know like what your problem is like oh i need more water it's too hot or my car is broken whatever right and you you're good at identifying your pain points generally but you might not be good and you're probably not good at solving most of them right um because most of those things require some pretty expert knowledge like how do you how to how to fix some particular problem with your car might not be something that that you know about but you know you have the problem um, and that happens a lot in in any governance where there's a, like many people voting. Any given problem, probably most of them are not an expert in how to solve that problem. So if it's up to them to vote for the right solution, um, you know what are the odds that they're going to vote for a solution that looks right to the to a majority of people, but is just not actually a good solution, right? Um, and prediction markets are a way of bringing in kind of so-called experts, or really they're self-identified experts. Um, so the original idea of a futarchy would be you just ask the general voters a very general question, like, you know, how how good is your life right now, one to ten, or something like that. Right. Um, that's I think that's sort of how how he did it in the original paper, which might be might be way over generalized to ever work in real life, but it's a good example. Um, and then let's say people, you know, let's say the answers average out to five then anybody is allowed to just make a proposal that they think will raise that rating the next time people get asked. And then anybody can make predictions with real money on those proposals about how much they think the rating will go up if that proposal gets executed and I see. Gets, gets put into practice, right? And so now people that have the specific knowledge that would give them you know, a better, better odds at, in making those bets, they have a pretty strong incentive to, to make big bets. 
you know so if if um if you say my problem is that my car is broken uh and then someone proposes to fix the car in the wrong way someone else proposes to fix the car in the right way and and an expert can differentiate between the two then sure. they might bet really big on the right way um and then they'll they'll win out from that and that's a way of kind of bringing in an expert opinion without just giving experts way too much power directly in the system um so that that might be like a bit of a a long-winded explanation but th that's a really interesting use case and it's a problem that really isn't solved very much in in any of the current systems um what we have that's closest right now is these delegation systems but those don't really solve this problem because right. they just bring in politics right so it's to be a big delegate is the same thing as being elected to you know a, a governing body in like a state government where sure maybe maybe you can convince people you're more eligible by saying, hey, I'm an expert at, at making new laws or something. But really, you're just convincing people that you're an expert. You're not actually proving that you know how to do it well, right? You're just convincing people to vote for you. That's what it's selecting for. And the same thing is true for delegation, right? So that's probably why you're going to see like big social media influencers be the biggest delegates, right? Like how, how is anyone, no matter how expert, going to compete if they have 20 Twitter followers or however many, right? Um, so that might be something that over the long term, people figure out how to integrate this stuff in a way that actually improves things. But it's also, I mean, you can tell from my explanation, it's pretty convoluted, right? It's pretty hard to figure out how to add that in. And we're still at a pretty like basic level when it comes to these decentralized governance systems. So it's probably a bit too soon to, to worry too much about exactly the right ways to do those things when you know we barely have on-chain governance working we barely right. have you know delegation working um the 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 bigger the, the thing that i think is really coming next is is like um fractalization or, or like a subsidiary systems where a larger governance body like say the, the compound governor contract with all the comp holders finds more ways to do what they're doing with grants, where they basically delegate a certain amount of the budget to a smaller group that can act quicker that is supposed to do a certain thing, right? So in this case, they're supposed to give out grants um, and doing that a bunch more. So if you're looking at like what Yearn is doing next, they've got a similar thing where they need to split things out into teams to basically reduce the burden on their central governance group um, from doing every single thing every day, which is this huge bottleneck. Um, they're just delegating some responsibility out, um, and we need some more systems and tooling to support that. Um, so I think that's like the next practical bunch of Legos that that will probably get made. I 100% agree with you on that. Um, I, have, I have so many thoughts uh, on so many things that you touched on there. But one of the things I do want to highlight before uh, talking about urine and kind of thinking about getting these grants out uh, is I feel like you highlighted a little bit, you know, of course, of you know, U.S. politics type issue and in global politics, really anything in the in the dem uh, democracy republic era of we're seeing these influencers um, being able to drive votes to your point of like, as long as I can convince my following through my brand, my my social media following, I can win a presidency, I can win a governorship. And like, we're certainly seeing a trend that is exactly what you're talking about in, in just simply being a popularity contest um, and, and not in a kind of old school way, not that the old school was a perfect solution either, but in a way of just like, hey, I've drummed up the support and here's what I have and I have no 
expertise aside from what I've claimed <laughs> as an expert right. uh, and my <laughs> massive following, by the way, uh, to get me to this position. And so I love the uh, prediction markets um, to try to squeeze at that. And one question that was coming up to my mind in that particular part of the conversation is the, the kind of the leadership or the governance body or however you want to kind of think about sort of the system that is going to make prioritization. I mean, it strikes me that you could then use sort of the market cap of each one of these sort of smaller betting markets to then also try to figure out which ones to prioritize, which ones to go deeper in, which one, like how to think. It's like if you had 10 betting markets out there and all the money's flowing into this one, and maybe that market's settling to a distribution of, you know, four solutions at 25% each, but the, the, the amount of money that's being traded in that space is so much larger. It certainly feels like an interesting way of governing an organization to say, like, let's spend our time and energy and our kind of research into that particular market. Is that like a secondary kind of effect of that? Or are these time boxed at a, like in a one-off type, you know, a series situation as opposed to a parallel? Yeah, I, I think the answer, like <laughs> I've said this answer a lot, but the answer is basically nobody knows what the right way is yeah. to do there, but, but I can speculate on it. And my speculation would be that um, you don't want to ask the, like the, the people who should be responsible for um, prioritization or, or like budgeting proportionally at least are should be the voters right the voters are the people that the system is supposed to serve um so you wouldn't necessarily want to want to go on the market cap or like the tvl in DeFi lingo of like a given prediction market to understand how much budget should go to that topic because those are that's the tvl you expect to go up as like competition between the predictors i see up. right um, so but it's still actually, I mean, maybe it, it might be really highly correlated for all I know. So it, it could work. I, I don't know. Um, but but my first thought of where, where it should be is actually on the on the first layer. I had actually, this is like almost three years ago now, I, I had proposed, this is almost before I really got involved in DAO governance when I was thinking about these ideas. I had proposed a structure where it's a lot like Futarchy, except instead of asking that one kind of naive question, like, how good is your life one to ten? You would just let people ask whatever they wanted, basically. Um, but then you'd use some some kind of simple simple grouping mechanism to to group people's thoughts together. Um, so you'd end up with something like a, a Reddit, like a subreddit, where you end up with just a list of topics, but they're they're curated by something like the interest of the people in that subreddit in that topic. Um, in in a really a really you know, simple way, but there's a number of ways you could do that. One could just be like just voting, right? Maybe people are just voting for, maybe they get a certain number of votes and they can just vote for the different problems they want solved and they can vote for four things or something like that. Or, or maybe they have each a hundred votes. And if it's a, if it's a civil resistance system, then they could, they could vote quadratically with their hundred votes or whatever, mm -hmm. but basically they're voting for the different questions that they want solved, you know, which could be like, we want the schools to be better or we want better marketing for our project or, you know, whatever, whatever people you would let them group it basically right. based on what they're interested in. And then those would lead to the prediction markets. So if the top thing that most people were voting or devoting their voting tokens to was we need better marketing, then that would lead to, uh, you know, a, a proportionally large budget going to people making proposals on that topic and then people predicting uh, on those proposals. Uh, and then what they'd be predicting on is basically something about how much 
how many people in the next round would take away like is that is that is the budget for that going to grow or shrink like it's the priority right. for that going to grow or shrink something like that that would be a little bit more um granular than just that one giant question which i expect would be really hard to correlate with anything right like imagine asking all the people in the united states like how how good is everything right now and then asking a year later and then trying to understand causally what <laughs> what had caused the change yes. the answer, right. Right? that sounds yeah. insane um yeah. so i think you need something a little more focused than that um so i think something like that maybe but uh, i'm not going to be proposing to any of these DAOs that system <laughs> right, right now right yeah. like it's it's cool it's it's a novelty and maybe i think eventually we might get to the point where that level of optimization might be the right next step but i don't think we're there yet yeah i, I like your i like your pragmatism of sort of saying like where where are we today where are the lego pieces required uh for this for this next phase and um one of my kind of favorite uh, articles right now is by Andrew Beal, who I had on the podcast earlier, and you kind of talked about this government 2.0, which Yearn also used that same phrasing of sort of saying, hey, we're really thinking about governance right now, saying, hey, here's a proposal, it goes out to the entire uh, token holder community, let's, let's make the let's do a vote and, and let's go and sort of how much inefficiency uh, is in that process uh, of being able to make decisions rapidly and kind of talking about these, these sub communities and, and whatnot to, to be able to make that. Uh, and it sounds like you also think that that's probably the phase that we're in now is just sort of adding some hierarchy of some kind uh, to that process. Um, is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think that I think that one of the reasons it makes sense to to think practically here is that whenever you're you're considering these more complicated features and systems, it's really hard to predict the trade-offs that you're going to have to make in terms of usability um, in order to build those systems. And in the end, I think nothing's going to work that doesn't engage the group of people that that's that's involved, right? So, I think the tools the tools people are using now are are pretty overwhelmingly really simple right like just using snapshot for voting multi-sigs like relatively few proposals and just talking in forums right like there are a lot more sophisticated economic tools out there that have been proposed in papers and and, and whatnot but unless those can come in a form where communities can understand them and, and feel like they're useful they probably won't get adopted um, you know, you can come up with all these super sophisticated things to do with smart contracts, but um, you know, if if the trade off is too strong uh, against usability, then it might not work. And it's it's hard to this world is so new; it's hard to understand what those trade off where those trade offs are. Right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Some, some yeah. things that seem super unusable have gotten to the point where they've kind of been normalized, but it takes a long time and a big push for that to happen. And, and it's, it's hard to bet on, you know, it's, it's hard to bet on prediction markets, even today, even with so many people having been working on them for years. Um, if you go look at them, still the biggest prediction markets on those platforms are like, who's going to win the U S presidential election. Right. And yeah, that's the, the biggest the of topics, right. Yeah, that's been <laughs> the case for like the entire 30 year history of prediction markets. You know? Right. It's been like sports betting and politics. And so the, the, even though there's this promise of the usefulness of prediction markets for all sorts of questions, um, it still hasn't proven that it can get past that usability um, barrier. Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is mapping the mental models of 
you know, the, the contributors, token holders, everyday people. And like one of the things I'm really struggling with is this balance between kind of classic centralized organizations, right? Where people, at least in the past, you know, they're going to work, they're in this environment, they're listening to these meetings, and they have these thoughts and these, you know, frustrations and excitements, whatever it may be. And sort of by virtue of sort of being immersed in that culture, you know, for 40 plus hours a week, you sort of like that radiant energy is sort of going to be captured uh, in one-on-ones. Like there's sort of this natural process of, and even just griping at a simple level, right, mm-hmm. is sort of captured in this feedback loop of, of going there. And there's so many downsides, obviously, to that to that structure. But you're sort of almost getting forced participation by the people who who care. And then there's certain people who don't care. And, you know, it is what it is. And then there's sort of this Dow world where I'm kind of observing um, almost something similar, but you're really only capturing the highly engaged, which it might be totally fine. And maybe that's like the totally the right model. But it does strike me that there's like some loop that's missing that I suspect that in the old school kind of trans um, centralized world, you would be able to get some feedback loops. And an example, I don't know if you've heard of it, it was like Ray Dalio's hedge fund uh, Bridgewater, like they built this this software where the idea was any meeting, anytime anyone's talking, you can vote and rate them in real time of their trustworthiness and and how, you know, uh, how much you believe their particular plan. And his whole idea was building this, you know, this hive mind within that centralized organization. And it, it strikes me that like some of the principles that he was driving at are some of the same principles, obviously, that DAOs are driving at. But he had the benefit of sort of capturing people in that centralized physical location to drive that behavior to be like, I'm paying you to be here and to be thinking about this and giving me this feedback, which feels just very different than the, than the current DAO structure that we currently have going. And I'm not saying either one's better or worse, but it just strikes me that there's some really interesting things missing that I think Ray was able to tap into, at least uh, from a marketing perspective. But are you familiar at all with what he was trying to do with that? Or am I kind of going down? Yeah, that's that's new information for me, but it, but it's, but I, you know, it's, I have thoughts for sure. It's, um, yeah, like this stuff is really complicated <laughs> yeah, uh, because it gets into like psychology and also like in the nature of kind of information, right? Like, um, another thing it reminds me of is if you've ever participated in like local governance in your town or something like that, what you'll find is that there are like the town feels obligated to hold these like meetings for feedback uh, i guess cities do this too but it's, it's such a bigger system it's hard to it's harder to to get your finger on it um they'll say like oh we've got this new zoning proposal you know um so come to this meeting and give us your feedback and we'll change the proposal based on your feedback um but of course what happens is that the same tiny minority of people come to all these meetings and they're really vocal and they drive the you know the public officials crazy because they're they tend to be people that are like super adamant about one particular thing and they're exactly. just like really really you know really really harping on it and so the question is you can kind of take two perspectives to this kind of thing one is you know it's really a problem that more people aren't participating because you know we're supposed to represent everybody in the town but we're really only representing this vocal minority um and that's and that's bad um that that means we're making decisions that aren't you know really serving the interests of the town which is going to lead us in in the wrong direction uh over time but the other perspective is that hey if those other people cared more if 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 you know they had more riding on what the local government did they would come you know they would do it right um and this is kind of the argument in general for like participation right it's like well, you can't. You shouldn't complain about participation rates in national elections because 
that just shows that for most people, the outcome doesn't matter very much. It's not even worth a trip to vote to them. Like their vote is not worth it to them. And, the, and that's just okay, right? Or, or it's not okay. And it's, it's really hard to, t- really hard to <laughs> form a really clear opinion about it, to be honest. Um, and I think you see the same thing in, the, in these communities where um, there's really this question of how much participation is the right amount, you know? Um, and one thing that I think is clear at this point is that even in large communities like this, the like the sort of Pareto principle of like, you know, 80% of the work is going to get done by 20% of the people. It's probably, it's actually definitely more extreme than that. You know, there's mm-hmm. going to be some small group of people that almost self-identify as the people that really want to be the core team on this thing. And they're just going to end up doing a lot of the work and everybody else is going to end up kind of defaulting to them and trusting them because they don't want to spend the time on it, right? Like they're just a token holder or something. And then if you extrapolate that to a world where imagine all the products you're using on the internet are co-owned in this way, how much are you going to participate in the governance of all? Oh, exactly. Right. Almost none, right? So there's almost no world where you can expect a very high participation rate. Um, and the question is like, how, how hard should, how hard should we even try to get people's participation? Because there's the sort of Chicago school argument of like, people are voting with their time and their wallet already. You know? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you don't need them to vote in another way. And I don't know what the answer is to that. I, I don't completely agree with the Chicago school thing, because I do think that, um, if you distribute ownership to a more representative group of stakeholders, like if if you've got a company that's that's owned, quote unquote, not only by the financial stakeholders, but also the people that have like the utility stake um, or uh, or like a livelihood stake, like the, exactly. the workers and the mm-hmm. users mm-hmm. that I think you will end up and you can run that efficiently as efficiently as a shareholder owned company. I think in the end, you will end up with a, like a, a more competitive company. You know, you'll end up with a, a company that's more popular, I think, in the end. Um, yeah, I you have to represent all the groups and you have to do it the right way. And that's just a theory, I think, at this point. But there's some, you get two really big advantages from doing that. One is that um, ideally your decisions are going to be more well, well aligned with the actual people involved in your thing. So like you can still keep the financial stakeholders fairly happy, but you'll keep the workers and the users or the customers, depending on what kind of business you're talking about, um, way happier, you know? And so, you know, that's just going to be way better for your business over time. Um, but then second is that you get this huge new growth incentive of telling your customers and your workers that they're getting significant amount of ownership in the thing just right. by participating. And that's right. a huge advantage at the beginning, um, which is, I think, one of the big things driving the, this movement in crypto is that it's suddenly become much easier to distribute that ownership in some form um, than it is to do that with a traditional company. Um, so so I, I do think that that part of it, I think, is is starting to shift, and I, and I hope that it continues to shift because I think that maybe is a is a better world. Um, but I'm not sure about this participation rate thing. I, I think there's a decent chance that that it stays with really really minimal participation from most people, just because it's hard to it's hard to imagine a path where people are just like spending all their time, you know, participating in governance. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think your your point is 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 well taken. That you know, it's it's a it's a holistic decision. It's a better holistic kind of process to bring in more stakeholders and be able to give them actual shares. And you know, we've seen it time and time again where the the, the financial 
group is the is the only representation uh, of the governance, which then leads to all sorts of uh, of kind of terrible um, global outcomes, maybe maximal outcomes for that group, but uh, for the whole entity, um, suboptimal outcomes. And one thing that did strike me is that I've, I'm realizing one of my personal rants around politics, not to get into into politics uh, too much here, but um, is this idea, though, of of allowing people to vote in through like a value stack system or how do I represent my values or my principles through a democratic process that are a lens onto governance as a whole so that I can sort of be a I can be a participant in a non-direct way, to your point about that local election, right? It's like, I might be able to vote. I support environmentalism. And we and, and you do that right now by voting for a particular candidate who then says that they're going to represent those values on your behalf, right? But like, that it's a human-driven process as opposed to a value, a principle-driven process. And this is probably much more uh, out there and, you know, vision than it pragmat, uh, pragmat, pragmatic. But how do I get representation say, I don't want to get involved in every single decision, but annually, uh, I just want to say that this is sort of the value stack that I think we should make decisions against, right? And, you know, it's like people first, the environment second, and profits third, right? Like that that's a very simple structure that I feel like DAOs might be able to start to programmatically put into some of these structures and say, okay, yes, we don't need high participation from every single person on every single issue. But what we want is high participation, high participation on a regular cadence against this value stack. Now we have the value stack, allow the value stack to filter in or prioritize against our day-to-day decisions that a small amount of people can influence in. That strikes me as maybe a path that we can get there, at least one that I can I can go uh, to bed at night getting excited about. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's kind of what I was going for with that with that older prediction mark related prediction market related proposal, where the idea was like for, for the average person, the only thing they would need to do is like every few months go in there and say, these are the three things that I care about. I see. And, and review, you know, and, and then the next month, you just, in three months, you go in and you change your answers or whatever, or, or you can do it however frequently you want, something like that. Even that might be more than we can expect. And you could say, well, what if, what if there's a central place where I just say, these are the four things I care about in general, and then that filters out to everything that I... Interesting. Yeah. You know, but then you run into again the problem of like how are you going to really correlate anything because it's like so generalized. Yes, such but a the other thing that you made me think of that I think is is makes me very optimistic, even though it's a, it's kind of a pessimistic mechanism, um, is there's a lot of power in the threat of power <laughs> without yes. it ever actually having to be used, right? Um, the the people that end up on these core teams feel a lot of pressure to represent their token holders even if most of the token holders are never saying anything um, because they know they could something could happen, right? Or like, even if you've got a system like, like Yearn or, and many, many others that are like this, where actually the token holders have no power, you know, it's ceremonial or it's social, right? Like there is no on purely on-chain voting system that lets the token holders actually control the system right now. It's just a snapshot disconnected from a multisig, and the multisig is just expected to listen to the snapshot. Um, but if the if the multisig just went rogue, they could fork the system and everybody would just move their liquidity. Um, and unless they could, you know, do it before before everybody was able to remove everything, um, they would still get punished for that. And to generalize from there, I think like if if you or I 
had governance power in like a thousand things, you know, whatever number of things we're customers of, um, we could actually not use it at all 99% of the time. But then in that rare case where there was something that one of those projects was doing that someone felt was really against the interests of most users, they might start making a big stink about it like on social media or something like this. And then you might see that. And then you would get this little movement that would appear emergently and say, okay, go stop the Starbucks CEO from instituting this policy. Um, I think you just tokenified you know. uh, cancel culture. <laughs> <laughs> it is almost it is almost like that, except you know, not really towards specific people, right? Right. Like, yeah. More like and policies. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. But it would be like you know, you you only need to mobilize everybody when when something important needs to be done, and the rest of the time it can just be um, the the threat of that happening <laughs> that kind of gets the incentivizes the core team to try to represent the uh, right the people you know like yeah. to try to think about it because they want they know that something could happen so they want to try to preempt it and and understand those interests just for their own sake you know um yeah so that's uh, it is a little bit pessimistic sounding but <laughs> that might actually be the answer you know yeah it, it gives you i think to your point a uh, asymmetric kind of power balance to allow low participation rates while still having a balanced system. And, and I think that, you know, U.S. politics, uh, I'm in the U.S. and so I'm, I'm biased in that regard. But it's this this element that you often see politicians as they're up for re-election at the end of that first term, sort of all of a sudden they're very, you know, they're very adaptive to a whole bunch of different cases that they were completely uh, ignoring for most of their time to try to drum up those like, oh, well, actually I voted for this particular thing and I'm actually very blended and trying to maximize. And so you yeah. sort of see a little bit of that, but it's like, could you take that element and try to drive uh, good faith behavior through an entire term by having something like that asymmetric kind of threat of power, to your point, yeah. um, might be an inter interesting governance uh, pattern that that we don't often see. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel that a lot of the problem in, in traditional representative governance, governance right now is actually, it's actually an epistemological problem. Like, if you really knew whether the person uh, you elected was representing your values well, then you could, you know, you would just know when it comes time to the next election, like, do I want to reelect this person or not? Right. But right. if you think about how you're actually making that decision, it's probably based on what they're saying on the campaign trail and their exactly. ads and everything much mm -hmm. more than their actual actions, because it's too difficult for you to understand their actual actions. Right. And right. that, that is where a lot of the, the corruption comes in because there's this huge space of freedom that they have between what they're actually doing and what they tell people they're doing. Um, and, and, and to your point, even down to the bill, right, the, uh, a party will say this bill supports environmentalism and they'll say, well, I actually voted no for it because it doesn't do enough for environmentalism. Right. And it's like, how does a, a voter and the bill is a thousand pages long? So exactly. what are you going to do as a voter? Right. Even exactly. the people voting for the bill didn't have time to right. read it. Right. You know, um, and that's really a problem of just how do we know things these days about <laughs> politics? How can you tell if the person who's supposed to representing you, supposed to be representing you actually is? Right. Um, it sounds stupid, but I personally I find it very difficult. You know, I just have no idea basically yeah. um, for for the people that are representing me. Like I don't know what they're doing. You know, I would have to sit on their shoulder and watch them every day, what they say, how they vote, what you know, I, to know whether they reflected my values. Absolutely. 
So before we keep going down, I, I am enjoying this rabbit hole uh, with you, but let's let us stop and, uh, and and end the podcast. But I really appreciate for you uh, for joining and I really enjoyed our conversation. And so if you could just remind, remind people where to follow you or where to check out LegDAO, uh, I think Lego DAO would be super awesome. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I'm my name is Ezra, but uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Mozrat, M-Z-R-A-T. And you can also find Lego Dao on Twitter at L-E-G-O underscore D-A-O. Um, and we've got uh, we've got other places to find us, but that's probably the best place for now because we're not, um, you know, we're not marketing a big public group. We've just got groups with the various projects we're working with at the moment. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. But that's that's where it is for the moment. Awesome. Thanks again for joining and be well. You too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Armada podcast. We would greatly appreciate a review in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to stay in the loop even further, head to armada.fm where we have a repo. You can check out what we're doing and what we're learning along the way. Love to see you there. Thank you.